Welcome to the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Wallner. In each episode, we'll explore the life and legacy of an influential Jewish figure. Today, we're looking at the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza. In the second part of the show, I'll sit down with Ian Baruma, author of the new Jewish Lives biography, Spinoza, Freedom's Messiah. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. In the bustling city of 17th century Amsterdam, a lens grinder named Baruch Spinoza shaped not only the glass on his workbench, but also a new way of seeing the world. Born into a Portuguese Jewish family in 1632, Spinoza's early years were marked by an insatiable intellectual curiosity. He challenged the conventional notions of God, proposing a view where God and nature were synonymous. This radical idea got him expelled from the local Jewish community, but also gave Spinoza the freedom to develop his path-breaking philosophy. Spinoza's masterpiece, Ethics, is one of the most seminal works to come out of the Age of Enlightenment. Written to mimic mathematical proofs, Ethics was a daring exploration of God, nature, and human existence in both content and form. Spinoza's intellectual legacy has lasted. His ideas on the freedom of thought and the rational examination of religious dogma laid the groundwork for the secular, pluralistic societies of today, and his insights into human psychology and the power of reason influenced thinkers like Voltaire, Rousseau, and even Albert Einstein. In his audacious pursuit of truth, the outcast lens grinder Spinoza became a beacon of humanism and intellectual courage. Nearly four centuries later, Spinoza's inquiries into the nature of reality and the divine still resonate. The philosophy of Baruch Spinoza invites us to revel in the complexity of human existence and urges us to engage authentically with the profound questions that have echoed through the ages. Discover the life and legacy of Baruch Spinoza, the Enlightenment thinker whose beliefs on freedom of thought and speech resonate in our own time, in the new Jewish Lives biography, Spinoza, Freedom's Messiah, by Ian Baruma. Save 25% for a limited time only. Use code SPINOZA at checkout, only at jewishlives.org. Ian Burma is a writer born in Holland who lives and works in the U.S. Much of his writing has focused on the cultures of Asia, particularly that of China and 20th century Japan. He's currently the Paul W. Williams Professor of Human Rights and Journalism at Bard College. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can start by reading us a passage from the book that helps us get to know Spinoza. 
Okay, I'll, I'll read the last paragraph of the book. Spinoza was a man of many cultures, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, and Jewish. But he had no tribe that made him a universalist. Other great thinkers born in Jewish families, Freud, Marx, Heine, and others, followed his example. But their choices were easier than they were in Spinoza's time, which is why they all, in their different ways, acknowledged their debt to him. Even if one does not accept that Spinoza was right about everything, how could he have been? He showed the way in which all human beings can think freely and discover truths that apply to everyone. For that, we all owe him a debt. Not as a good Jew or a secular saint, but as a great and humane man. Thank you so much. Going back to the beginning of the book, I was taken by a phrase you used to describe Spinoza, the Moses of modern free thinkers, which kind of relates to your subtitle too. So can you talk about more of what you meant with that? Well, I don't think I, I coined that phrase. I think I was quoting somebody else who called it the Moses of free thinkers. But I think what it suggests is that there was, even though he was banned by his, by the Portuguese synagogue in, in Amsterdam in the 17th century um, for supposedly being a blasphemer, and he rejected for himself all forms of organized religion. He never became a Christian. He was very much a, a rationalist who believed in human reason and not in revealed truth or sacred truth. There was a sort of an element in him that was a little messianic. And it was not just as a scientist or a philosopher that he made his name, but his philosophy was very much meant by him as a way for people to live better, to live uh, more freely, to be able to think for themselves, to be, and, and as a result, to be happier. And I think thinkers who, who promise a better life often tend to have disciples around him who are interested in more than just philosophical questions. They are quite interested in the questions of, of life, how to live life, and, and so on. And that makes them into sort of guru-like characters. And he, he did have that element, and hence perhaps the comparison to Moses. There was a messianic part of him. And what was his creed, or his creed really, was how to think freely. And that philosophers, which in the 17th century really meant people of science, should have the freedom to think freely. And in societies where that freedom doesn't exist, it hurts everything else because it makes uh, society itself oppressive uh, and so on. And so freedom of thought was really his, his big issue. So speaking of science... He wasn't a scientist, but another thing he's often referred to as the father of modern scientific thought. And when I think of scientific thought, I think of empiricism. So why is that something that he also is referred to? Well, I think because in the 17th century and, and later too, most people were still thought in religious terms. And that meant that the way the world worked the way, the way the human body works, the way the, the stars align, and so on and so forth. The knowledge about that was largely religious knowledge. It was the, the knowledge of the Bible as revealed by God. The great quarrels in the 17th century, which of course lasted much longer than that century, were between those who thought that human reason and, and um, 
reasonable research and looking at the facts and, and so on. In, in other words, scientific inquiry, um, where the best way to um, analyze how the world works, including human beings and the human psyche and so on, then revealed sacred truth. And so there was a great rift between the philosophers like Spinoza, who believe that the only way to truth is, is scientific inquiry, the, the human reason, and the clerics, who were the interpreters of God's, God's truth. And in uh, the Dutch Republic, where Spinoza was born and lived, uh, the clerics were represented by the Calvinists, strict Protestants, who deeply resented the philosophers because it made their monopoly on teaching what they saw as the truth, which was the sacred truth, the truth of the Bible, it made it redundant. So speaking of the clergy, Spinoza was excommunicated during his lifetime from the, by the Portuguese Sephardic synagogue in Amsterdam. Can you tell us what happened? Well, he, he grew up as a young Jewish scholar. He went to, to a Jewish school and learned Hebrew, and uh, so he was steeped in Judaism. But already as a young man, he began to have doubts. And the main doubt, the one that really got him excommunicated, although we're not absolutely sure why he, we're not sure about all the reasons why he might have been excommunicated. There are all kinds of speculations, and particularly why the, the banning was so harsh, because in Judaism, the cherem, the ban, can be given for all kinds of reasons, often trivial, um, because you haven't kept kosher or something, and very usually the ban is lifted very soon. He was excommunicated very harshly um, and was not allowed to talk to any other Jews and so on and so forth. But the main theological reason is that he denied that there was such a thing as God the Creator. He had a concept of God, but he thought that God was the same as nature. And it was not some outside force that had created nature or the world or man. It was inherent in nature. And that didn't only upset the rabbis, who of course did have a very different concept of God, um, but it also upset the Calvinists. And the Jews were allowed to live in the Dutch Republic and had many rights. They had the right to their own religion and so on. They had the right to become prosperous merchants, some of them. But their position was always precarious, not, not as dangerous as in other European countries at the time, but it was still precarious. If They, they had to be careful not to annoy the Calvinist majority um, in any way. And Spinoza's views on God uh, and miracles, which he didn't believe in, would certainly have upset the Calvinists, and, and that would have frightened the, the rabbis as well. Are so there any other? Okay. Um, so you, you, I think you pretty much covered the next question, which was about his how his view of God differs from traditional monotheistic perspectives. Is there anything mm -hmm. else you'd add? Well, I mean, part of religion was also, of course, the belief in miracles and angels and an afterlife. That's another very important thing, even though the afterlife in Judaism perhaps was not quite as important as it is in Christianity, but it's still important. He didn't believe that for a second. I mean, he thought that, you know, you die, you die when the body dies. And so um, he really was, in that respect, a, a strict rationalist. And um, the main pillars of religious belief, whether it was Judaism or Christianity at the time, felt deeply threatened by his ideas. 
I think you pretty much covered the next question, which was about how his view of God differs from traditional monotheistic perspectives. Is there anything else you'd add? Well, I mean, part of religion was also, of course, the belief in miracles and angels and an afterlife. That's another very important thing, even though the afterlife in Judaism perhaps was not quite as important as it is in Christianity, but it's still important. He didn't believe that for a second. I mean, he thought that, you know, you die, you die when the body dies. And so um, he really was, in that respect, a, a strict rationalist. And um, the main pillars of religious belief, whether it was Judaism or Christianity at the time, felt deeply threatened by his ideas. He was admired by an extraordinary range of Western thinkers throughout the ages. And in the book, you name Flaubert, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Goethe, Heine, Karl Marx, Freud. So what explains the breadth of Spinoza's appeal? Well, it's a very good question. I think in some ways, you know, everybody has their own Spinoza or picks and chooses what they particularly admire about him. And so Keats and, and the romantic poets in, in England admired him, I think, because of his metaphysical view of nature. I think a lot of Jewish thinkers in the 19th century and 20th century, like Freud and, and Heine and Marx and, and so on, admired him because he was he never denied his Jewish background. He he was, as I said earlier, he was steeped in, in the Jewish tradition and at the same time was completely secular, which in the 17th century really wouldn't have been possible. People didn't conceive of being a Jew without being a religious Jew. It was religious, it was defined by its religion. So to be Jewish but not to believe in in, in in religious Judaism would have been a complete, the people wouldn't have understood it, which made his position, of course, a very lonely one. Because at the time, your religious affiliation was in, in many ways more important than your nationality. That was your community, and, and he was without one. But that's a position that became very familiar to intellectuals in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so in that sense, I think they all identified with him as, as a free thinker. So final question for you. If you could speak with Spinoza, what would you ask or is there anything you'd want to tell him? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't presume to want to tell him anything. Um, what would I ask him? I think one of the things that, that is never entirely cleared up in his thinking is that on the one hand, he was very aware of the dangers of um, mob violence and mob hysteria and something that is very present in our own time and society. I mean, the way that a demagogue can play on the fears and emotions of, of the mob, which can create violence and persecution. Well, he saw plenty of that in the 20th century. So he, he was very careful to stay away from anything that could lead to sort of mob hysteria. And uh, he didn't trust the people, as it were, and, and or, the, or the uneducated people, because they thought they would misunderstand his ideas and and become unruly. And so he thought that the, the ordinary, uneducated mass man needed some kind, something to believe in, which would be a sort of kind of civic religion that made them behave better and more morally and so on. And then you had a small, highly educated elite of free thinkers who should be completely free to take thought in any direction they wanted, but which in the hands of less schooled people might be dangerous. Now, that's what he thought. 
in the earlier writings, in the late, the last thing he wrote, which was the political treatise, which is an extraordinary attempt to define democracy or his idea of democracy, which was remarkable in the 17th century when there wasn't anything like democracy as we know it. And there he says that um, the people should be trusted, or at least the people who are independent. He included women, but not women who were married, because married women were dependent on their husbands. But widows or, or unmarried women, he thought that they should all participate in, in politics in a democracy, and that the kind of violence he earlier associated with the mob could come from anybody, even from educated people, if they were manipulated in the right or wrong way. And so I suppose I would, would, I would ask him whether he thought there was a contradiction. Thank you, Ian Baruma, for talking with us about your new book, Spinoza, Freedom's Messiah. Thank you. The Jewish Lives Podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, the Jewish Lives editorial director, Eileen Smith, series editors, Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, managing director, Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Walner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen.